Hi, everybody. This is Michael Cuomo from Crypto Cappuccino. Please join me today as I'll be speaking with Amit Sinha from Voya. Voya has a $250 billion asset management company in the US. And we'll be talking about the institutional doctrine of cryptos. We'll be talking a little bit about this as an asset class backed by economic outcomes and cash flows. We'll also be talking about the regulation and some of the culture and themes around this very exciting space. We'll be finding out a little bit more about Amit's uh, fascination and how he thinks this space might evolve and incorporate and integrate into our industries and our countries and the way that our systems operate. It's a really interesting question, a really interesting conversation. So I hope you can join us. Welcome, everybody. This is Michael Collo. I'm here joined from New Jersey, from New Jersey. Uh, it's my best accent I can do, sorry, uh, by Amit. How are you, Amit? Hey, Mike. Uh, doing well and happy to be here. All right. Could you please introduce yourself to our lovely uh, listeners uh, today? Absolutely. Hi, everybody. This is Amit Sinha. I am the head of multi asset design at Voya Investment Management. Uh, Voya, for those who are not familiar, we are a um, roughly $250 billion um, asset manager, uh, mainly based out of uh, New York Atlanta, uh, and Atlanta. Um, and I, as part of multi-asset design, I'm responsible for managing portfolios that, as the name suggests, multi-asset. So across equities, fixed income, alternatives, derivatives, um, mainly focused on trying to meet any particular custom outcome that our clients are looking for. Brilliant. Fantastic. And I often like to kind of wonder with um, people's careers and how they kind of came to be at this moment in, in their life. Um, so just love to hear a little bit about, I suppose, how you, you came to be here and what, what are the steps you took and, and what brought you to this conversation? Sure. Um, as as everything in life, you know, it goes exactly according to plan. And so this was exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, just kidding. Um, so uh, life started out. Uh, so I grew up in India, um, town called Chennai in the south of India, came to the States for my undergrad, went to a small liberal arts school in Pennsylvania, Franklin Marshall, um, had a good time there. And um Joined JP Morgan in the sales and trading group as a summer intern uh, on the derivatives desk. So uh, my that was my first introduction to finance. So I learned about an interest rate swap before I knew what a stock or a bond was. Um, liked it, enjoyed it, uh, joined, joined the group full-time after graduating and uh, did that for about six years. And then a group of us from from the swaps desk, ended up starting a pension advisory business where we looked at pensions as a um, asset liability problem. And like derivatives people, we decomposed and we said there's interest rate risk and there's asset risk and all of these um, other things. And we felt we could, that there was a need for people who understood both the asset and liability side to help pensions. And it was, Back then, we didn't know what to call it, but it became what you would call today a LDIO CIO. So, lively driven investing, outsourced CIO business. Um, so, I was, I was managing portfolios there, uh, mainly on the hedging side. And through that, got also interested in um, how, to, how to use derivatives and, and algorithmic strategies to replicate the asset class exposures you want. Um, that led to quantitative investing, so I ran a couple of quant funds, um, and then um, tried to build out a startup that married technology, finance, and human behavior, which ended up leading to Voya, uh, where I was trying to build a startup, trying to raise capital, around the same time talking to Voya, when raising capital, as you probably are aware, sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, and uh, and at the same time, Boya was building out this um, really interesting platform. And uh, they were like, well, would you like to do what you were trying to do as a startup within a larger organization? And that's what brought me here. Wow. That's, that, that, that's really cool. So you've kind of had a little bit of everything. You, you started with that big business 
mindset. You've had the startup, you've had the quant life, you've had the entrepreneur raising cap life. <laughs> so all the different kind of elements. I mean, it, it always fascinates me how it is kind of what you began by saying is when you look back on your career, it, it, it feels a bit neandering, but there's kind of a structure to it maybe. But obviously at the time, you have no idea where it's going to go. So um, that's interesting about this whole space. So you wrote something really interesting recently for me around your thoughts around this entire space of blockchains and um, metaverse and DeFi. And the reason I kind of liked it is because it made points about, you know, the disruption and the industry impact of these technologies. And, and I suppose the evolution of these technologies coming into these industries and creating new channels of economic wealth and, and output and so on. So the reason I kind of like that is because Again, it reinforces this narrative of, of the idea that there's some real technological changes or shifts that could be happening, but they also are materializing in the context of how these industries themselves are, are changing and reshaping. So um, for those of you who haven't read it, definitely uh, see if you can get a coffee, copy, but um, maybe if you want to talk about it briefly a bit, and then we can kind of start to talk about some of the points. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think let me first start with the, uh, with the key points of the of the article I wrote, because I think that'll help frame frame the points. So the article was really my, uh, it was really my open exploration into some of the more um, philosophical aspects of what I see as an inevitable evolution, right? And, um, and I'm stealing this from Josh Wolf at Lux Capital. Five to 10 years from now, I feel very certain that a large part of our daily lives and the financial economy will be somewhere in the call it Web3, DeFi, blockchain type of world. I have zero idea how we're going to get there and what's going to be the way to get there, right? But, and, but then the more you look at it, um, and at least the way I was approaching it was, I was sort of deconstruct because there's, there's a lot of noise um, I'd say it's still hard to get signal from that noise today, but there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of activity and there's a lot of opportunity. Right? And there's a lot of capital, a lot of smart, brilliant people. Um, and when you have that type of movement, you have, you have two things that are very important in, in the evolution of any system. Right? So one is there's, the nuts and bolts, and the, you can call it the economics, the technology, whatever. And then there's also culture. And so my article was really more of a note to myself about how there is this evolution of culture and economics and what's happened in the past that, I, that you can use as an analogy. And, um, and so what I went through was trying to think about uh, think about things like, you know, starting with the origin of uh, transactions and value and trust. So way back when, when you think about evolution, you had, um, you know, we initially started with the border system. Right? And, and in my article, I talk about, yeah, if you want a glass of milk, you, you give a bushel of wheat and you trade. That becomes unwieldy and, and has its constraints. So we moved into, uh, we moved into a world of, uh, having some sort of transaction token, if you will, right? It could be cowrie shells, gold, silver were the end evolution of that. And, and so if you think about that progress, and then you come to the world of fiat money that we have today, and there is money in itself doesn't have value unless someone trusts it as a medium of exchange. And so that then led me to think about, okay, what does that mean when we get into the world of crypto, Web3, DeFi? And you know, we were talking about this before we got online where you know, there, are, there are a bunch of evangelists, you know, very smart people, very driven, but they think that the whole world is going to be changed by crypto and this whole decentralized world. Um, I take a slightly different look towards it, which is that... If, it, if you're looking at a store of value, something like a Bitcoin or something like that, you need people to believe that it has a store of value, similar to gold. Okay? Transactional value is going to come from trust. 
and and we can go many different directions. So I won't I won't go deeper over there. But that's the other element. And then the last element is I try to compare what you see with the metaverse and how you have this race now amongst a lot of the tech platforms to build metaverses as kind of almost like virtual countries and economies. So whether it's like India with the Indian rupee or China with the Chinese one and these closed economies, Roblox, Facebook, and their own closed economies, how does that change? So I've said a lot. So why don't I pause there and, and see what direction you want to go? I think there's a lot to decompose here. And there's a lot to say. I mean, I, I, why don't we start kind of in a macro way, kind of the top, and then we can work our way down. I mean, your point regarding economies and economic development, I think, is an interesting one, especially considering currencies and how they uh, act and, and react. I mean, I suppose one of the big narratives around Bitcoin specifically is around this notion that we're going to create a new world order, right, where there's no boundaries and no borders and capital moves across all borders, essentially the ultimate peer-to-peer network where, you know, all of us are connected to each other and we can send money without institutional frictions, without banks getting in the way, without government imposing capital controls. And, and the fact that actually currencies themselves form an interesting kind of barrier of entry or movement between things and that the control of, you know, conversion of currencies does something similar. I, I feel like Europe had this experiment or has this experiment going right now. And I feel like what we have discovered is in our economic system today, that currency is not only a means of, of exchange for goods and services, but it's also a fiscal tool. And it's a um, tool in order to create relative competitiveness between industries and companies in different places, as well as a, you know, a, a tool essentially for the government to intervene in, in economics. Now, Whatever you might say, I suppose, I suppose then the question becomes, do you think that's a useful tool or do you think that's an abused tool? And, uh, you know, because I, I think if you think it's a useful tool, then you would say, well, that's a really useful tool. So if we break down the barriers and create one big global currency for exchange only, you're kind of removing a really big part of economics, which is around, you know, uh, actions related to that tool, the interest rate policies, for example, of, of the currency and so on. Um, I suppose there's another point of view that says actually very much the, um, you know, the, the um, let the market kind of ascertain or determine the right way of doing things kind of uh, approach. I don't know. I don't love to hear your thoughts about it. My, my I suppose my, to play my cards openly, I, I feel like a number of times we have let markets um, govern in terms of uh, asset prices. And, and we've seen um, behavior that hasn't been quite efficient uh, and it's lead to you know animal spirits and booms and busts and, and some pretty, quite big disasters. I think the arguments around well that's just because governments are interfering kind of true, but actually I, I would suggest not true for a lot of different ways. And so I, I don't, I'm not really a believer in capital prices will kind of work themselves out. And therefore, if we have one global currency, then the right interest rate will emerge and the right conversion will just emerge out of that system. Um, and therefore, I do see, for example, dangers in the idea that there can be one um, sort of means of exchange. However, I definitely see the point that it's also become very political and that currencies actually serve a strong political purpose, as we've seen recently with the sanctioning, for example, of Russia, where they become weaponized and they, they form a part of a political agenda and particularly an agenda that is waging a certain kind of warfare between nations um, so lots to unpack there, but I guess broadly, the notion of Bitcoin and the reason we should all adopt Bitcoin and use Bitcoin and Bitcoin is the future, I think has one set of arguments behind it to say, because we'll be able to, you know, be integrated as a global society and we'll be able to kind of remove a lot of these boundaries. Is that, do you think that's a good reason to adopt uh, Bitcoin? Um, so I think we... There, there are three layers at which I'll, I'll address that, right? So the f- one is um, on the valuation side, the other is the decentralization argument. And then the final is basically the, the equivalent of the central bank role, or if you will, to take the currency analogy. Right? 
So if we take the first one, which is sort of the store of value, I think, um, I think Bitcoin's value arises from the fact that there are 100 million people who believe Bitcoin has value, or whatever it is, right? It's kind of similar, and, and that's where I think the simplest way to think about it, at least the way I think about it, is like gold. So, you know, with, with the specific Bitcoin protocols, and if you stick to the Satoshi Nakamoto 18-page original memo and all that, forget the number, it's like 18 million Bitcoins, and there's a finite supply, and so there's finite supply in this culture, so effectively it's like digital gold. And the same way, you know, I'm from India, Indians love gold, jewelry, it's, India is the world's largest importer and consumer of gold, but Barring its use in jewelry, barring gold's use in, um, let's say, some high-tech uh, components, there's a lot more supply of gold than utility of gold. And the gap is made up because for thousands of years, we have been programmed to think of gold as having value. And because Bitcoin, in the eyes of 100 million people, has value, it has value. So that's one. Now, what that value is, that's going to fluctuate, right? Could it go to 100,000? It could. Could it go to 20,000? It could. That's just a matter of, relative to the US dollar, that's a matter of you know, what people perceive they can exchange that unit of Bitcoin in a regular traditional world, right? So if, if you're going out there and buying a candy bar, at the street, uh, at my at the grocery store across the street, I got to convert that Bitcoin into dollars. Right, so so that's one. We can start with store of value. The second is when you think about uh, when you think about Bitcoin from the perspective of um, the whole decentralization argument. Now, what's interesting is when it was the original peer-to-peer -peer network the decentralization made sense. But if you see what's happening now, and this is not just for Bitcoin, but for any system, like even if you look at the internet, when you have a lot of decentralization, you'll end up with two to three large players controlling the system. Think about Google and Facebook in the world of uh, online media. Technically, there are no barriers to Crypto Cappuccino becoming a brand for which people would pay, uh, would, uh, pay advertising dollars for. Yet, because of network effects and economy, and just because there are no barriers, you have two to three big players like Facebook and Google who own the digital ad space. Similarly, in the world of crypto, as you have more and more people coming in, there's, we go back to the original word of matter of trust. And so where does that trust come? The trust comes from these nodes, or clans, for example, or a coin base. And so suddenly the intermediaries who are trying to reduce the friction between me so that I don't have to type in my private key every time. And so they're easing friction. But what that means is they're also creating points where, let's say, a regulator can cover. So your decentralization, I think, once you reach scale, it's very hard for you to be decentralized, if that makes sense. And, and I think I just want to pause on that. That's a really interesting point. And it takes us into the notion of what is the value, I suppose, of, of the decentralization proposition, right? So you, one way to think about that is with blockchain, one of the primary considerations is that, that or part of the motivations of people get enthusiastic is a little bit similar to the, to the Bitcoin argument, which says we don't like centralizing agents. They have too much power. And what used to be an intermediary to facilitate transactions between two parties has become a blocker or a controlling agent. So these agents are not only intermediating me, for example, putting money in deposits and you taking out a mortgage, but is now telling me how much I can put in, I mean, is maybe restricting you from accessing that capital market and so on and so on. So the, the observation is that, well, we've got enough people with enough abilities, so we need to kind of reset this relationship. But I think what you're saying is that if you start to do this at scale, you naturally get points of nexus or consolidation, if you will, where people are passing through those points at high frequency. 
But I suppose the question becomes, if we can um, ensure that those points have a smart contract or some such very limiting structure, which says they will only ever facilitate two things, because even though it says smart contract, it's in many ways a dumb contract, a limited contract, mm-hmm. and it says that it can only do that, then you essentially, you know, essentially put a put a ceiling on the kind of a monopolistic or kind of expansionist idea. So in other words, that node where people are exchanging money or people are borrowing and selling, there will only ever be that node, right? So for example, if, if clans is, is a great exchange, crypto exchange, we will then never grow into a, and we're a smart contract. If we were a smart contract, then we would it would guarantee the fact that it's highly unlikely, if not possible for us to ever grow into something more expansive than that. Um, I, suppose, I suppose the question is, you know, it, from a, uh, what you're saying is that that's actually not really likely because, uh, again, unless you have everything as smart contracts, even then you might have an expansion of smart contracts and just naturally these industries tend to consolidate, uh, especially if they're transactional, into single players. And as they do, basically, um, they're, they're monopolistic or that kind of centralization of power uh, returns, even once you've decentralized it and you've created very low-powered independent nodes, which have very simple functions, um, eventually you, you'll have this consolidating agent or this monopolist that comes in. Well, unless, unless it's restricted, right? Which is sort of almost counterintuitive because restrict, it, you're building the decentralized network so that you're not regulated, you're not restricted. But the less the restrictions are, the more, the greater the likelihood of these monopolistic and monopolists may not be bad, right? Sure. Could end up be. We're not passing judgment on whether monopolistic is good or bad. I think we'll, where where I'm going with that thought process is that if there are no restrictions, you will get these consolidation nexus points in a decentralized world. But, but I think that's that's an interesting one because to your back to your previous point about how this will integrate into our economy. So what we have here is a technology that says, look, we can do transactional activities much more efficiently. We can do that by essentially um, uh, you know, creating these rules-based decomposed structures. We can make sure mm-hmm. that the systems are uh, using um, certain structures and cryptography to keep track of the truth, and therefore we can trust them. So we understand what they trust them. I suppose the question becomes, uh, are these tools that will come to challenge institutions themselves or will they be integrated into institutions? Kind of like how FinTech has gone in the past where uh, I think there's a, initially when FinTech was really hot in 2012, 13, or thereabouts, I think people were like, yes, this is the new wave of banks. We're going to replace banks. And then they realized that banking was hard. Client acquisition was hard. Trust was not easy to get. You couldn't solve all these problems with an algorithm. And it was all very difficult. So I think a lot of these companies, not all of them, a lot of them ended up selling their technology to banks. Essentially, banks themselves became a lot more um, you know, financially um, savvy. They, they brought a lot more expertise in-house. They brought a lot more technology off the shelf, some successfully, some not so. So I suppose the question becomes, do you see blockchain as a kind of technology um, or NFTs for that matter, integrating into existing providers or do you see them challenging them? That's a fantastic question and something that I'm, I'm actually very excited about because I, I, I think I'll give you the short answer at the end and then I'll, give, and I'll work backwards to the long answer. Right? I think the short answer is you will see, you will, I don't think it'll be a challenge. It'll be integration. And the players, though, may not be the ones that, you, that may be natural, right? And I'll try to explain what I'm saying both directly and by analogy. So direct, directly, um, something like a smart contract is actually very exciting, right? It opens up a lot of possibilities. Um, to, like, so, you know, I work, like I, like I mentioned earlier, I start out in derivatives. Right? If you think about derivatives, derivatives are the, in a way, an original smart contract. Because, except, Instead of a blockchain, they were written on a piece of paper with very expensive lawyers. But it's it's basically a promise between you and me, which says, if X happens, I will pay you one. Right? And 
by doing that, the very first interest rate swap was between IBM and uh, and the World Bank back in like I want to say the 1980s. Today, the size of the interest rate derivatives market is probably 10 or 20 times the size of the fiscal market because there's a very well-established set, established set of rules. And those rules are now coded into exchanges and OTC contracts and all of that. And so I can definitely see something like that happening and it would be fantastic if it happens through technology at the very simple way, you, know, you take blockchain, you take smart contract, Theoretically, if you take NFTs, not the board ape kind, but just the fact that the NFT is a pointer and an immutable pointer, right? So you can think about things like, you know, whether it's your, um, your housing deed, right? So your house could technically become an NFT connected to a smart contract, allows you to have much more efficient, let's say, um, home loan system, right? Or credit system. So the possibilities from that are endless. To your point about like the players, but for an end consumer to adopt it, you're going to need things like KYC, things like customer acquisition, things, and all of these things which established players have. Now, is that established player a bank, like a JP Morgan in the US or ANZ in Australia? Or is it going to be Apple, Google? Or is it going to be Coinbase plants? That's a TBD, right? But what's amazing is that with all of these are now in the realm of possibility. Yeah, and, and I think this is the kind of the 64,000 or the, in the case of, sorry, it's a $42,000, whatever the price of Bitcoin is kind of question, which is because part of this movement and what I find fascinating about its industry and we get really excited about is they're onto something really interesting in the technology. It's, it's outlandish in some ways, right? It's we can replace a bank with a smart contract. And we're looking at this stuff going, can you really? Wow, that's a that's incredible. And of course, people from finance were like, well, maybe, but it feels like there's a lot more to it than that. But then I sort of think back on whether this conversation is very similar to what we had in passive and active management. So in the, back in the 2006, 2005, if you ask people, yeah, it's active managers, you have to have a, uh, an asset manager is managing your money because they understand the market, they understand earnings. You have to pay them one and a half percent for that privilege. And then along came passive and said, actually, we can do this quite transactionally. We can just buy the top players in you know the market and we can deliver that for you for 50 basis points, so a third of the price essentially. And you won't have you know the same uh, personal face and personal brand behind it, but you kind of get very similar economic outcomes. And therefore, why not? And of course, it took a crisis like 2008 to switch people onto the importance of fees and and uh, and basically to get them out of this habit. But now it's just been a one-way street toward passive management for, for a decade or more. And so it feels like it's an industry that's kind of really struggling to establish its value proposition in light of an alternative that is passive and that's quite rules-based and is very simple. So I kind of look at blockchain and I think, is this... The passive investment moment that was for asset management, but for the banking system, or in the in the terms of DeFi contracts, for example, so decentralized finance where you've got lending and borrowing, which is pretty, you know, fully collateralized basis. So it's not the kind of really sexy stuff. Um, and you're kind of looking at it going, yo, if if a simple contract can do that and it can, you know, take care of six billion or ten billion, it feels like maybe you could do more volume, right? I mean the I think the total DeFi contract space, according to certain sources, are somewhere in 170 billion type of range, um, which is still nothing compared to the 850 billion that's in the credit card books of the top five US banks, for example, or the trillions that are in the total consumer lending portfolios, or the 45 trillion that's in the bond market, like it's tiny. And so you kind of, I guess what you're doing here is you're trying to understand what is the value, economic value of this idea. But on the back of it, the cultural element, which is you began by talking about how it feels like there's a critical mass of talent and people going to the space. I feel like the mission vision of these people is not to reduce the lending costs or to, to automate uh, lending functions because that feels a bit boring. But the mission and vision of these people are, are all about you know, 
um, basically shaking the foundations of, of these institutions, of these mon monopolies, of this whole structure and system that quietly you and I are part of it, or certainly a lot of us spent a lot of our careers being part of. Um, and I suppose, you know, the, the question for me is whether that's a futile event or not, because it, once it becomes a futile event, I feel like that part of this industry will just exit. They will kind of say, well, <laughs> nice one, but the reason I'm here is not because I, I like making blockchains in my spare time is because I want to disrupt this industry because I want it to change. I don't want it to be the same as it was before. I want it to be, give us a voice. I want it to get out of our way. I want it to be more peer to peer. I don't want to be controlled by governments, by banks and so on. And if in five or seven years, we're standing at a point where nothing's really happening and, and the banks are just, you know, integrating these technologies, I, I, I wonder where that passionate energy of this industry will start to manifest or how, because it I, that to me is one of the big differences between the AI integration problem, which when AI came along, everybody was like, yes, AI, future electricity, right? It's a new electricity. It's going to go everywhere. But I feel like the fuel that was fueling AI wasn't, we're going to destroy the establishment. It was, it was more around, hey, we're going to do things quicker and easier and more intelligently, and we're going to give more access to more people and so on. So I, I often kind of, as you said, a lot of intelligent people, but there's a certain underlying culture. Um, and, and I just wonder kind of how, how do you think about the economic adoption and the value of these technologies versus how that or their culture will kind of evolve? So I, I think that's a fascinating question, a fascinating topic, Mike, because I take a slightly different view than you. Maybe it's a slightly more optimistic view if that was to pass judgment <laughs> on our views. Um, and that comes with, like, definitely those who start out you know, are the visionaries, right? They're the, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, zealots, right? Sure. The zealots in a good way, and they're, they're truly passionate about something which will just be a revolution. But as we've seen, you know, whether it's the internet or going back in time to any major disruptive force or element, in a way that disruption happens only when it becomes a part of society. Sure. And because that's when you get your adoption, that's when you get your critical mass. So if we take that scenario of, let's say banks, and, and I use the term banks loosely because you know, a few years from now, a bank may not be the institutions we're talking about. It could be very different institutions. But them adopting, let's say, let's for what we're talking about, DeFi and smart contracts as the way business gets done or the rails on which financial products are made, sold, transacted. That's a win for the system as a whole, right? Um, so I look at it from that perspective, but the other point that you uh, that came to my mind while you were talking is that one of the big differences between, let's say, what happened with the internet revolution in the 90s and over here is that the internet was allowed to go a long way before the need for regulation. Like, I don't know if most people know or not, but like at least in the US, um, internet purchases were not taxed until I want to say maybe even post 2000. So it's been less than 20 years that internet, um, uh, internet sales have been taxed. So regulation kind of let the techies just do their own thing until it became too big to ignore. The biggest difference here and which, you know, is... I would say a little concerning along the road is the regulation, regulatory side, right? Where I think if you put the regulatory brakes on too late, you have the problem of losing trust. You put it on too early and you're going to choke off a very good system. And, and, and so that's, that's the one, one very big variable that, that I see in terms of adoption down the line. And, and, and that look, regulation is an interesting one because unlike many other industries, this industry has started from the bottom up. So we have 40 million customers in the US who have access, for example, or own big cryptocurrency at some point. And the way that it's been kind of, I suppose, sold has been this just enough of a emotional hook, aka anti-establishmentism, and then essentially a very steep price rise. 
So people wouldn't have put you know thousands of dollars into Bitcoin, but the price rise has helped. So the magic combination of those two things means that lots of people have been, lots of retail investors or retail people, not investors, have been exposed as a kind of a speculative gambling idea long before the regulator actually defined it to be a financial asset or an asset at all. And so in that context, it was probably more conceived of as a bet, as a kind of a gambling kind of, I, I put five bucks on this random outcome, you know, we flip a coin and, and I win something yeah. or not. I suppose as the industry is now trying to attract a lot more serious capital and growth in capital, it's now looking to move up that scale into the high net worth, into the, the family office, into the bigger space. And, it, and to do that, I think it you do need regulation because you need the custodians of these assets, so the institutional investors and, and the mid-tier investors to basically have trust and faith and, and so on. I mean, I guess what we're seeing, I'd love to hear what you're seeing from New Jersey, from, from what we're seeing on this side of the world, um, we just have a rapid expansion of custodian services and all these support services that are coming on board and basically meeting a demand from institutions across the board as setting up crypto funds and ultimately crypto uh, products uh, for investment, preparing themselves for the mid-tier and the upper-tier type of uh, client to come in and basically talk about crypto as an asset class. And so hiring research teams, hiring product teams, and creating a lot of activity in this area. And that's certainly something that obviously we're keeping a very close eye on because it's part of our road product map as well. I, I think in order for that to happen, though, you need some amount of regulation. I suppose your point is, how do you not make it ridiculously difficult to develop new blockchains and to you know, develop this technology? Or, or even put a, a great burden on young companies to try to work in this space. Because a lot of countries like Australia need this as a industry of the future. So there's a whole other picture here, which talks about industry development and says, look, it's the end of fossil fuels. And for countries that are dependent on fossil fuels or, or have significant industries linked to this stuff, it needs to develop new technology-based industries. In one of these industries of the future could be blockchain. And therefore, what's the right way to walk this in such a way that you don't create a financial crisis, but equally you you kind of create some GDP growth and some industry growth as well? Yeah, and I, you know, I totally agree with you, Michael. That I think for the industry to thrive, for institutional capital to put in money, you're going to need regulation. And you're going to need smart regulation, which is, and by smart regulation, I mean keeping the guardrails, right? Because, I mean, with what you started out, like, there's a, right now, a lot of this industry is being run by speculation, right? And probably 80, 90% of the protocols that you see are probably going to be worthless in a few years. You just don't know which ones, right? And there'll be people who'll be burned. There'll be people who... And so trying to provide regulation, you know, similar to similar to what you see in, in just like the public equity markets, right? No different than that. I mean, we've we have a thriving capital market system, global capital market system that seems to be working pretty well in a regulated environment. So I think regulation is not only necessary, there are a lot of benefits to regulation. It's just where you regulate and why. If you're trying to regulate to protect your own turf, maybe not that great. If you're trying to truly regulate to protect the users in that system and have a rule of law, it'll be very good and helpful. To take that to the next level about, you know, what's the institutional involvement in crypto, right? And that's something that, you know, we're still, I'd say, a few ways away from broad spread adoption as a asset class, like even the term crypto as an asset class, I think is a misnomer because Bitcoin is its own animal. The, the protocols, so Ethereum or Solana or what, they're their own world. Then you've got DeFi smart contracts, different world. You've got the whole metaverse Web3 as a different world, right? Um, so you're going to see some activity and you're already seeing that in the venture space venture and growth equity. So you've got institutions going in that route. Um, but getting to the point where, you know, you can have like a 
crypto hedge fund where the reason there is a crypto hedge fund is because similar to an equity analyst doing discounted cash flow projections or somebody doing a relative value between Brent versus uh, WTI in the commodity market uh, or doing like a futures trade. That level of maturity, I think we're still a ways away. Well, that's a really interesting point because Mm -hmm. So I, I saw this recent report um, done by JP Morgan that tried to put a fundamental value on Bitcoin. Now, I agree that I think Bitcoin is a separate entity and it's about a storage of value and a transmission of value, more importantly, across the system and it derives a lot of value from that. But I feel like some of the other protocols that you mentioned, or at least the applications that run on those protocols, layer two, mm-hmm. layer three, have economic value to them. And you could potentially do various different valuation elements on it. And I agree that that's currently all being bundled together, but they're quite different. I, I guess I'm a little bit, what, what I see here is um, a lot more aggressive and rapid adoption this, of this as an asset class, primarily for the idea that they're creating product to meet demand. So yeah. when people say, listen, I want to get into crypto, but I'm not a speculator that just wants to look at you know Bitcoin prices every day. And financial advisory all the way up to services, all the way up to funds are looking at this person going, okay, we'll give you a fund, I guess. And they, you know, look around and go, maybe those five coins will do and whatever else. And so yeah. I, it, it's funny where um, it just, it really reminds me of, I remember being in a conference in London and it was a quantitative conference, 200 quants in the room. There was four of us on the panel. We talk about the adoption of AI and we're all kind of agreed that AI model in the form of neural networks was not really useful for finance. Finance was way too noisy. It was way too non-stationary. Um, you know, thanks, but no thanks, right? And we all kind of nodded at each other and went, yeah, 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 that's probably right. And so 200 people went, yeah, yeah, that's probably right. And then you walked out that room and you thought to yourself, I wonder how this is how the dinosaurs thought about humans. They kind of looked at them. Yes. You guys have no scales. You have no claws, please. And of course, the next conference, the next in three months' time, wasn't should we do AI? It was how do we do AI? And so I think the conversation had started because of the competitive pressure that said, no, we have to do something in this space. We have to say something in this space. So I kind of wonder, even before there is a economic argument for these coins and, and the, the fundamental root development, I suppose, of this industry, whether our financial services industry is going to swoop in and goes fantastic, we're going to make some products here, and the next time you turn on Bloomberg, you're going to see you know a uh, Ethereum or Solana strategist from a reputable uh, you know asset management company talking about you know a range of Solana projects and with MPVs next to them and estimating the market to be twenty billion or thirty billion or fifty billion or whatever else it is, because um, I feel like these conversations are already beginning, but they haven't yet progressed to that level, but all it will take is for them to hire five people and to start working on this stuff because, you know, unlike the rest of the industries, nobody can say oh, they've got 20 years experience in this field. It hasn't been around long enough. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And uh, I, I love that AI conference analogy because I, I, I do think that's where we are in this industry where, you know, you've got all of, and I'll include myself and my, me and my firm in that, you know, you've got, all of us crusty old style asset managers. <laughs> Hang going, on a minute. <laughs> yeah, you know what? This is good, blah, blah, blah. But there's other things. While the development's happening, right? So to take your Bloomberg example, right? There is no reason for a Coinbase or an FTX or a Galaxy, you know, with the type of revenues they're making right now to hire five people and just start pushing quote unquote research out there, right? So I, I think you'll see that that movement. Um, you'll probably see it rapid, at a pace that's more rapid than I imagine it to be, right? Um, and and that's why the, the question I keep asking is, who are the emerging players? What's their what what are the emerging business models? Um, so it's really, it's really not will it happen? It will happen. It's just what's the path? Exactly. Which is, which is the answer. Exactly. But 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 I feel like because we we understand the hunger of this financial system to create products and mm-hmm. to kind of move things forward, I, I feel like we kind of know, kind of intuitively know the answer, which is we'll we'll end up describing this thing as or parts of this thing called blockchain community as as 
economic value. We start using the language of risk return, volatility, correlations, betas, whatever. And we'll start, you know, it's already begun, actually, this number of really good surveys and reports talking about what is the optimal asset allocation of one to 2% to this asset class. Um, And then obviously, but as you say, we don't have a language for valuation. I mean, I, I, looking at this space myself, and the closest I've come to uh, thinking about this is like micro caps where you've got, I don't know, 100 investments Mm -hmm. and two of them will do really, really well and 90 just do nothing, as you say. And so... That that really skewed distribution path, um, which again is a sign of a of a startup or a starting industry, uh, is probably going to be similar. So getting economic exposure to these projects, probably through the coins and through the currencies, maybe in some cases through some of the bigger listed entities uh, potentially. Um, but it's it's kind of playing this theme in thematic investing and and various other products will probably be a natural area that a lot of this capital starts to find its way into the system. I guess the question for me also goes back to how does that change the production cycle? So what kind of projects will therefore come on board? Because we know there's a lot of money from VCs and PEs chasing yeah. blockchains or blockchain creators. I wonder whether this other kind of institutional money coming in, buying the, the currencies or the listing assets, how that will also change some of the focus areas of, of these companies. So I'll use... And in your quant, so you'll appreciate this. I'll actually, you know, one of the reasons why right now, and you'll see this for a little while, the money's coming from the VC space is because of that power law dynamic, right? That you just explained. So as long as the distribution is more of a power law type distribution or a Pareto 80-20 type distribution where one to two winners and a lot of losers, that lends itself well to a VC tech model. That's right, yeah. Right? And, and that's what you're seeing. And that's why you're seeing VCs investing in tokens and protocols. It's not quote unquote equity, but they're basically saying that if X succeeds net, 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 if we are in 100, 100 different firms, we have different protocols, one is 1,000X, we do fine. Right? The next evolution, and which is where I think you'll see what the, the dynamics that you're talking about, comes when that power law distribution converts to more of a normal log normal type of distribution. So then the traditional things like, and you'll, and you won't, I mean, there are some, some hedge funds that have already gone down this path, some high net worth funds that are doing this, where you'll have like, okay, like these classifications of large cap, mega caps, like Bitcoin, Ethereum, then the next 10 tokens and a few micro cap tokens, right? You're beginning to see that. What will get really interesting is when you then start doing these relative value plays between, let's say, a Coinbase, which is a publicly traded entity and is an exchange, and you can do exchange dynamics, against something that's not. Right? Yeah. Um, and, then, and then as this evolution becomes, it goes back to like, again, like I would use the internet as the example, right? And then you earlier would just have an internet analyst, right? Covering all internet stocks. Look at it today, you've got Amazon is not covered by the same person who covers Google. They're two very different businesses. And you, I think that's just a natural evolution and the more, it's, it's sort of like a feedback loop. And so the more of that evolution you see, the more institutional players come in, the more institutional players come in, the more of that evolution you'll see and you'll see the market mature. Yeah, it definitely feels like that, but it, it might be quite accelerated one. But look, it's been a yes. brilliant conversation to me. I want to ask you one more question before we wrap it up, which was slightly controversial, but purely, I suppose, based on what you've seen so far, is there a particular area of this entire Web3 blockchain, Metaverse, DeFi, I'll throw in some NFT, I'll throw in some more <laughs> lingo. Um, yeah. This entire area that you know excites you and you go wow this is really quite cool definitely the DeFi smart contract DeFi smart contract DeFi smart contract with the concept of nft right so going back going back to what i said which is if you can provide an immutable record like a gps coordinate or something and that is permanent and cannot be and cannot be um, 
cannot be counterfeit, if you will, sure. right? Or duplicate, right? Combine that with the value of a smart contract, which means I don't need to negotiate or there's no controversy behind it. The amount of real world friction, something like that can eliminate is housing. You look at third world economies and the trust that you don't- It, it, it feels like bad news for the legal industry as well, quite frankly. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> a lot of contract law, but, but you're right. I think certainly the underbanked or unbanked as well as the inefficient, but even in that bigger, I suppose, in developed markets, there's a sense by which it's a, um, not a reimagining, but it's a kind of a, a back to first principles automation type idea that feels very, very powerful. And as you say, as soon as you start to link in um, assets that are verifiable, like an NFT on your house ownership contract, it feels like you can take it further and further. So again, it definitely feels like some an area that banks should be looking at and probably are looking at, right? I wouldn't be surprised if they're already looking at, right? Like Absolutely. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time today. I mean, it's been a pleasure having you on and, and talking about this space. I, I feel like, you know, what was that saying? Oh, to live in interesting times, right? And so I, I feel like this is maybe the second or third big technology evolution or wave. Um, so AI being one of them, maybe passive in the rise of passive was another um, that, you know, this industry of financial services and asset management is going through. And I'm sure, you know, within ESG and a few other kind of very significant waves that we're all kind of dealing with. Um, so, yeah, fantastic to have you on and, and to have a good chance to talk about it. I absolutely enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to our conversation with Amit. If you're interested in more of these kinds of conversations around cryptos, blockchains, and all things around investment, investing and investments in this space, please head over to our website at www.clanswithaz.com. Alternatively, you'll find copies of this podcast on Spotify, on Apple, and on all other major podcast providers. But we also have an app we'd love for you to check out in the App Store on the Clans, C-L-A-N-Z. Thank you so much for listening.